And so today we're actually uh, in the second part of kind of in, in this whole series we did week, last, last week was part one of how does the gospel shape our sexual morality or sexuality? Uh, and that was kind of, we talked about the foundation of what is a healthy biblical sexuality in terms of understanding biblical intimacy in the context of marriage. We talked about that last week. This week we're going to shift and talk a little bit more about a, a kind of a comparison between a culturally shaped kind of understanding of sexuality compared to how the gospel actually shapes our understanding of what uh, sexual morality is supposed to look like for our lives. And so we're going to be looking in that, at that today. And as I said, we'll eventually get to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, but before we, we go down that road, I really wanted to kind of set some some context because this is really important. In fact, Tim mentioned earlier about his illustration of the dead rat and the gain. Um, the biggest issue that all of us deal with when it comes to sex or the topic of sexuality is all tied to this thing called shame. And shame is the thing that attaches itself to something that God may have done in our lives or something that's good or a point of failure in trying to follow Jesus. And even though we're forgiven, shame still casts a shadow over our life. And when you know that you're dealing with shame, because shame works a lot of different ways, but it, it, it kind of rears its head in two forms. Shame causes us to pull back. So many times what, what happens is shame creates a sense of embarrassment about ourselves, about our behavior, about things in the past. And so one of the ways that we cope with that is we just withdraw and we, we hide. And we, it's kind of like what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve when they were found out. What was their first response? They hid from God. That's what we do. We hide and so we withdraw. But then there's a second kind of almost the opposite reaction that shame causes us to. And that is, is because we're trying to not allow people to see what's really going on inside of us because we're afraid. We react with pride and pride pushes back because it says, listen, I don't want, I want to be protective of what's going on. I don't want really people to know. So I overcompensate to make it look like I don't have an issue in my life. The core reason that we have shame and the core reason it comes out in pride or withdrawal is one core issue that every single human being deals with. It is our fear of being rejected. That's where shame, that's where shame gets its fuel from. It's, it's fueled by that. Because what we do is we withdraw saying, you can't reject me because I won't let you know me. Or we react with pride to say, you won't reject me because I'm going to overcompensate for the shame that's in my life. I share that this morning because what I want us to do as we go through this morning is that there's going to be some topics that we hit on that are not light topics. They're easy. They're not easy topics. And so there's going to be this, for some in the room, automatically shame's going to rise up. And so you're either going to withdraw and you're going to disconnect from what's going on, or you're going to react in pride like, no, that's not an issue in my life. I'm asking you to dial both of those down today because the enemy wants you to feel a sense of disconnect or defending yourself. And instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to come and work in your heart about what he wants to say. So with that being said, I'm going to do the same thing I did last week, which is, um, this is a PG-13 message, okay? Um, and I'm giving that warning, so if there are uh, middle schoolers or, or below in the room that you, if mom and dad, or you don't want them to be in the room because you don't want to have that talk with them right now, then actually, Lauren's actually standing, Pastor Lauren Thornycroft's standing in the back. We have uh, a special room they can go hang out in uh, during the message, and then you can talk to them later, or maybe this will be a good springboard for a conversation. Like I said last week, you're either going to love me or you're going to hate me after this message, but it's important for us to have this dialogue. That's one of the issues in the church. When we don't talk about this, we create this vacuum that the culture fills when it comes to sexuality. So so I just wanted to give you that. And if you if you need anything, Lauren's there, but you can make your way back to room one to hang out there. So got it? Ready to move on? So excited to talk about sex again? Yes, I know it's the awkward kind of like, really, in church? Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm excited to talk about sex. 
So the, the first five things, and these are, again, these are difficult to navigate, but I want us to talk about initially, what does a culturally shaped sexual morality look like? In terms of what does the culture say, this is normative and acceptable behavior according to our kind of understanding of sexuality. And so understand too the background of culture. So many times when we look at culture, we go after individuals and say they're bad. Yeah, we're all bad because we're all sinners. But culture is driven by, I think there's a combination between our own sinfulness and our own corruption and the enemy. And so what drives this is anything that pushes back on God's parameters, God's ideal, God, the way God's created things. And so anything that can become the opposite of that and create that as normative behavior, that's what culture always settles in on. That's why we see a progression of culture of things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So these five things are kind of the things that have become normative behavior. These are acceptable. These are not wrong in culture. But I want to start with these because then we'll move to how does the gospel shape our understanding of sexual morality. So the first thing is this. Culturally shapes uh, sexuality, sexual morality has to do with extramarital sex, which means it is completely normal and is completely accept acceptable to not worry about this thing called marriage, but sex is free for everybody to access with no problem. There's a myth embedded in this idea, and that is this. It's just sex. What does it matter what two consenting adults decide to do. That's the cultural norm. In other words, why are you telling me how I have to live? Why are you playing the cop on my, my morality? Why are you telling me I can and cannot do things? If I'm consenting and another person's consenting, what is the harm in that? There's a problem in that. Listen to what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. This is really important. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He says, all sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You do not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is, uh, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So what is Paul saying? Listen, all other sin is outside. It's directed outside. But sexual sin is what? It's actually a self-violation. It's a sin against somebody else, but it's a sin against yourself. And that's important to understand. It's not that somehow in God's eyes there's a pecking order of the severity of sin, but the impact on us is greater in this arena, and that's why God gives us a context for this. This is important because in this context, the word uh, sexual immorality is the word pornea, which is where we get the concept of pornography from, and it's any sexual activity outside the context of marriage, and that's why it's laced throughout Scripture as something God says that's not something you want to participate in. See, what happens, and we'll talk more about this, is we mentioned it last week, is that it's not only a spiritual reality, it's, the, it's a physiological reality that when you engage in a sexual act with somebody, there's the hormone oxytocin that's released, which is a bonding agent that creates a bond between you and another human being. And that's a bond that God created for a man and a woman to experience in the context of marriage on purpose. And so extramarital affairs or, or extramarital sex creates this bond, 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 and you begin to give away part of who you are. And before you know it, you have an unnatural, awkward bond with people who maybe you don't even have a relationship with anymore, but you've given us a piece of yourself away. But in our culture, this is normal and acceptable behavior. This is the culturally shaped morality that we live in. Second thing is pornography. Culturally shaped morality says that pornography is good and normal and a part of helping the sex process in our culture. There's a myth behind this, and the myth is this. It's just images. It's just video. It doesn't hurt anybody. And it's interesting in our culture because the issue of pornography is like, well, it's not really having sex. It's not really the act of sex, so what's the problem with it? Well, Jesus highlights the problem with this kind of mentality in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart or in her heart his, with her. So what is he saying? He's saying that the sin of sexual immorality 
is inside of us. It's in our heart. And so whether we take the physical act or physical step of participating in it or we actually fantasize in it and live in it in our own life, it's the same reality. It's the motivation that's there. And that's why it's important to understand that, that pornography is not harmless. It's destructive to someone who's consuming it. It's destructive to someone who's actually participating in it. And what's been interesting in our culture is that, that pornography has grown to billions and billions of dollar industry over, over, over a year. It, it's crazy how much pornography has grown in our, in our culture to become normative now. And now what, as the growth of pornography has increased, you know what's also increased is the stories of people coming out of the adult film industry and the destruction that their participation has created in their lives. In fact, particularly women, I, there are so many stories of women coming out of the porn industry who have told stories of being assaulted, being abused, being treated like dirt, all this and stuff that, oh, it's just portrayed on the screen. It's not. It's, it's, it's a reality that it, it leaves this debris field of destroyed humanity behind it. Yet in our culture, this is normal. It's interesting, you know, that you can't, you can't, I, when, I, when, you, when you purchase certain things, certain packages on TV now, it's hard not to eliminate pornography from it. I ran into this and I got something that was a free th subscription for like three months. And I'm like, sure. And the first thing I scrolled through, I'm like, wow, there's four porn movies right on my TV that I could access right now that I didn't even ask for. It used to be far harder to find that, but now it's every what? Because this is normal. In fact, I've had couples tell me, they've come to me and said, even Christian couples, and say, hey, you know, this is, we needed something to spice up our sex life, so we watch porn together. Not a good idea. Not a good idea, because what you've done is you've introduced something into your intimate thing that you share with only your spouse, that now, even though it's on a screen or it's an image, now it's become a part of what you're doing. It's now you're required your brain to go somewhere else than your spouse in order to reach a certain level of of exhilaration or climax in your relationship. And it's never supposed to be that way. But in the culture, what is this? This is normal behavior. This is normal behavior. By the way, these don't get easier. So you know, I know the, uncom the, the un uncomfortable level in the room will continue to rise, okay? Because the third thing is virtual sex. And there's a myth behind this. Sexting, phone sex, online sex are safe and harmless. Again, no, nobody's getting hurt, and there's no sexually transmitted disease being exchanged. There's nothing. It's just, it's just phone sex. It's just sexting. It's just sending a picture or, or, or suggestive words. There's a problem with that. The mentality that is embedded in that is built on this thing called consumerism. And consumerism always chooses a person or a thing to consume, or it, that thing becomes a means to the end for that individual. That's what consumerism is based on. It consumes which means that it reduces the, the beautiful thing called sex that God has given humanity down to an encounter that is built on something that we consume and simply discard when we're done. That's what it is. That's the reality of what it is. And see, the, the danger of, of, of consumerism is that consumers always leave when they find something better to consume. And so what happens is in that encounter, you've given a part of yourself away and somebody's consumed you. And instead of you being, in, there's this mutual reality of actual fulfillment. It is simply using one another for what you think is your benefit, but it always leaves a hollow sense in any individual who participates in it. Why? Because you've been consumed. You've been used, not because you're valued, not because you're loved, but because you simply served, you are a means to somebody else's end. That happens all the time. Third, or the fourth thing. Culturally shaped sexual morality also is made up of self-gratification. And there's a myth behind that which says 
what's wrong with making myself feel good? It's just discovering my body. And let me talk about this. If you're wondering, what am I talking about? I'm talking about masturbation. And this is one of the areas that really in the church we don't know what to do with. Here's the reality of masturbation. It is a normal part of a, of a child or an, um, someone who starts to actually increase in sex drive to try to figure out what is in the world is going on with my body. And for masturbation to occur early on in a child or a middle school or high school's life is not un abnormal. But if it, what happens is once self-discovery turns to self-gratification, then it becomes an addiction in somebody's life. Because all, all things, it's not that you need to go out and try it, but it's this understanding that very rarely does somebody discover their body and somehow leave masturbation behind. It becomes a part of their life. And here's the attachment that comes with that. Jesus mentioned it. The core issue in somebody who's dealing with self-gratification is the reality of it's inside you. It's out of your heart. Why? Because you cannot self-gratify without taking your mind somewhere else to reach a certain level. And so now you're using images and you're using other people to bring self-gratification to yourself. Why is that wrong? Well, it's interesting that Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. This is what he said. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. He's talking about sex, by the way, if you don't know that. This is a nice way of the Bible putting this in these terms. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul is saying, your body sexually does not, does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse currently, or if you're not married yet, your future spouse. And therefore, ongoing self-gratification is, is actually a violation of the commitment. What Paul, what Paul says is that I don't own my body. And by the way, guys, you don't get to use this verse to quote and hold over your wife's life. I've heard guys say, well, hey, the Bible says your body, I own your body. No, the only way you own her body is if she owns your body first, okay? There's a different reality. It's, it's a two-way street. Here's the reality. Your body doesn't belong to you sexually. It belongs to your spouse. Therefore, self-gratification is taking away from the intimacy that you're only supposed to have with your spouse. But in culture, this is normal. In fact, those of you who have had kids in public school, this is the wave now, right? This is actually being taught not as something that might happen. It's something that should happen for every child. Why? Because this is normal behavior. This is the normal sexual ethic of our culture. And then there's a fifth reality that is now becoming the normal behavior of our culture, acceptable and even promoted. And it's a thing called polyamory. It's another word for swingers, multiple sexual partners, outcome in the things we would call like orgies, things like that, where why do I have to be limited to one person sexually? Why do I have to do that? That's so restrictive. That takes away from the fun of what I'm enjoying. There's a myth behind that, and that's that same myth again. If consulting adults, consulting adults, hey, I'm good with this. I consent to this. What is that? What's the harm? The harm is this. Every time we make a decision, which is what Eve made the decision in the garden, Adam and Eve, remember they made the decision, they said to God, I will determine what's right and wrong. I will determine what's good and evil for myself. No thanks. Thanks for your wisdom, but you can keep it. It's the same thing we do in the sexual arena. We say, God, so what? You said you created uh, male and female in the context of marriage to have sex together, but I don't think that works for me, so I'm going to determine for myself how it works. So we're saying to the creator and the designer, we know better on what to do with the thing that you created. There's a challenge with that. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 2 before we'll get to the verse 24 and 25 we'll look at. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to verse 23. I want you to listen to carefully how God originally brought into existence male and female, how he went about doing that. It says, Then the Lord said, 
It is not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make him, catch this, a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them uh, to the man to see uh, what he would call them and whatever the man uh, called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds and the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found, again, a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it, uh, closed it place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I want us just to think about this for a moment. All the words to describe male and female are what? Singular. God didn't give Adam multiple helpers. God gave Adam one helper. And God gave Eve one helper, male and female. This is the way God designed it. This is the way he created humanity. Why is that so significant? Because anytime you and I take what the original design is of anything and try to use it differently, that's when we get into trouble every single time. In fact, this is something that's normal in our culture, that when we do stuff with things that aren't supposed to be used in a certain way, that's when we get injured, that's when we die, that's when bad stuff happens. And that's what, by the way, attorneys live off of, right? In fact, here, I'm going to just read a few things because this is where you see it all the time. Every time you buy a product, almost every single product, not all, but almost every single product comes with a warning. And you know what the warning's based on? Somebody tried to do the wrong thing with this product and it went badly for them. Therefore, we have to warn people, don't do this. So here's some examples. No joke, these are legit. These are like verified. These are on products. This is a warning label that appears on a baby stroller. Actually says, remove child before folding. Why? Why would that be there? Because a parent tried to fold their child into a baby stroller. I don't know how this one works, but this is actually on a wheelbarrow. It says not for highway use. I don't know why someone thought it was a good idea to attach it to their truck and drive it down the freeway. And no kit, this is one of the most actually famous ones. Apple literally, they don't sell them anymore, but when they were selling what's called the iPod Shuffle, which is this small little thing, it literally on the warning label says this, do not eat iPod Shuffle because some doctor had to retrieve it out of somebody's stomach, right? This is on a jet ski. This is really good. Figure out how this one got, came into existence. It says it's on a jet ski. It says, never use a, never use a lit match or an open flame to check the fuel level. <laughs> Somebody got a little singed. On a dishwasher, no joke, it says it's on a dishwasher. Do not allow children to play in dishwasher. Somebody did. Or here's a good one. I saw this one. Literally, it's in words, and it's actually, someone illustrated it so that people get the message. On a chainsaw, it says, do not hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. <laughs> Somebody tried it. And this is a really good one. At, at Halloween, the, the uh, Superman costume came out for kids. On the costume is this label that says, this costume does not enable flight or super strength. <laughs> so some kid took a flying leap and didn't work well. And then, no joke, on an iron, it literally says, do not iron clothes on body. <laughs> yeah, that could be painful. So we laugh at those. Why do we laugh at those? Because they're ridiculous. But when God says, hey, this is, this is the way I created male and female, marriage, and sex, we go, ha, are you kidding me? That can't be true. One person? No, that, that can't be true. 
So we, we move the boundary, and we move the boundary, and we move the boundary, and then nobody laughs about it. Why? Because it comes, becomes a normal reality. And that's why even in our culture today, if, if in fact, there's a TV show on right now that has, has in, its, in its script is written, one of the characters is part of a polyamorous relationship, and it is accepted and normal in the show. It's written in that way because there's an agenda behind it. There's always an agenda. Every time the boundaries move, there's an agenda that comes with it. Why? Because we want what is chosen to be something that's out of bounds to become something that's normative in our culture. But God has it as a different reality. So now I want to shift to Genesis chapter 2. We'll look at verse 24 and 25 in a moment and talk about a, a gospel-shaped sexuality or sexual morality. But before we get there, I want you to just to be reminded again, this is part of the whole gospel-shaped series, and this is why this is so important. Is that, as I mentioned, remember Adam and Eve made a decision which every single human being makes in their life. And that is that God says, I am God and you are human, human and I have wisdom and I love you and I care for you. Therefore, I've created boundaries and frameworks and guardrails for you to live your life within. And in that, you will experience what, you are, what it is to fully be human. You will experience what it is to actually flourish, to, to actually live out the way I created and designed you to be, which is to fulfill the purpose of being human. God sets that up. And so in that, we have a decision to make, just like Adam and Eve had to make the decision. Do I trust God that he is wise enough and smart enough and loves me enough to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and evil for my life, and submit to that? Or, in my own arrogance, do I choose to do it my way, saying I know better? That's the choice all of us have to make. But so we understand this. Why does God say sex with one person in your lifetime in the context of marriage, male and female? Why does God say that? Because God doesn't want you to have fun? Because God doesn't want you to have pleasure? Because God is trying to ruin your life? No, because God loves you. That's the bottom line. The motivation to be obedient to God is to live in the context of his love because he knows what's best for us. So that's why he says, listen, live this way and you'll see why I created you the way that you are. And that's why we, as we go, what we're going to look at is a gospel shape. This is the parameters God creates. Why? Because this is the way you're supposed to live. Why? Because I love you and I don't want you to step outside of something that will bring harm to you and to those around you and will miss out on the beautiful gift of sex that God has given to humanity. So reading in Genesis chapter 2, we read this last week, but let me read it again and we'll talk a little bit about it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what is embedded in this reality? Three things. The first thing is this. A gospel-shaped morality is based in monogamy. Monogamy makes this statement, only for you. I only give myself for you, only. It says in verse 24, which we talked about last week, they shall become one flesh. Not one, two, three, it's one flesh, which means two people coming together. Why? It can never be three. Why? Because three, there's always somebody left out. It can never be four. Why? Because there's people left out. It has to be between two people. But this monogamous concept is what God's created us to live in, to be only with our spouse. And he's created that for a reason. And I've shared this before, and I, and I, I, I feel it's important to share, but I, again, I don't want anyone to feel shame because I know that there's many in the room who you experience sex outside of marriage. You've, maybe you're living in, in a, a sec, you're sexually active right now, but I want you to understand there's a reason God 
has done what he's done to set it up. And I don't want to somehow shame the value of what God has done because I fear that someone might feel a sense of shame on what they've experienced. But God redeems all of our brokenness, and we'll talk about that in a moment. There's a beautiful thing that God has given to a, a human, each human being, and it is something that is fulfilled in many people's lives, but not always in everyone's life because there is a gift of singleness that God gives to people. But if he gives you, doesn't give you the gift of singleness and eventually you're going to be married, then God has given you something as a gift that is not for you, but is for your future spouse. It's called your virginity. And in our culture, virginity has become a bad word. It literally is. There's a show on TV right now that literally is set up where they do arranged marriages, where counselors get together, they do these profiles, and then people get married, and it's called Married at First Sight. It's an interesting take on marriage. I don't know if I agree with it completely, but Kim and I have been watching it. And one of the things that I was surprised to find is that one of the women who said she would get married when she got married at first sight, and within the first hour of being married, she reveals to the guy she just married that she's a virgin, and that's a negative to him. She saved herself, and he said, I don't know if I could stay married to you. See, we've come so far in, in our culture. The very thing that God says is a gift that you give to your spouse has become something now, becomes a liability when you get married in our culture. But God says, no, there's a different reality. Why? Because God has given you something pure and right that you're supposed to give away. And we will talk about this. God redeems even broken virginity, and I've seen him do it so many times in people's lives. But here's the analogy I want to share because this is so important, and I've shared this before, and I know it's ridiculous. But if a friend invites me to, when I was a kid, he invited me to a birthday party, and I remember, I remember doing this, but... I don't remember doing the whole thing, but I remember buying a Tonka truck because my friend liked Tonka trucks. So you buy like the big dump truck. It's got the big wheels and my mom wrapped it. And so three days, the party's going to come. And so, but then three days before that, a friend comes over and he said, hey, I heard you bought a Tonka truck for Bobby or Sam or whatever his name is, but I want to play with it before he gets it. So can we open it? And you're like, of course you would. No, but yeah, like I want to play it. So we unwrap it. We take it out of the box. We play with it. The tire gets a little scuff on it, but hey, Nobody's going to notice, so we wrap it back up, we stick it in the box, we're like, hey, we're good to go, right? No one's ever going to know. And then the next day, another friend comes over and says, hey, I heard that you let Sammy play with the Tonka truck. My turn. So you unwrap it, you play with it again, before you know there's another scuff, and that goes on for three days. And then by the time your friend opens the Tonka truck on his birthday, what does it look like? It's fallen apart, it's missing a wheel, it's pretty much destroyed. Is he going to be really happy about the gift that you've given him? No, no. But the beauty of the way God works is he go finds the lost tire, he repairs the gash, he fixes the paint, and he can, re he can redeem those things. But much better to stand before your spouse and say, I have a gift for you, than have to walk the long and hard road that many people have walked that God does redeem. But I would rather take the road that doesn't require redemption, but God makes provision for redemption in our lives. So God has created us for a monogamy. This is the way he's created us. Second thing, a gospel-shaped sexuality also has to do with intimacy, which means only with you. So it's, only, it's a gift only for you, but it's something I only do with you. It says the man and his wife were both naked, uh, and they, they were not ashamed, which means Adam and Eve shared something that nobody else shared. Full transparency. That's what they shared. There was this level of intimacy. Why? Because they were fully exposed, fully known, and yet they weren't rejected of you weren't rejecting each other. There was no shame. And that's the way, that's that's why part of dealing with shame is having a, a healthy sexual understanding of, of intimacy. Why? Because it deals with the shame issue in our life, because shame is based on what? Fear of rejection. And if I live with fear of rejection, then shame becomes the cloak over my life. But if I am fully known and fully accepted by my spouse, and I fully know them and accept them, guess what goes away? 
shame. That's called intimacy. Intimacy is when I am fully vulnerable with all of who I am and somebody still loves me. That's what God created because, by the way, again, it's, marriage has to do with, it's a picture of the way God deals with humanity where what he makes this decision to unconditionally love us even though we're less than perfect. That's the kind of love that we're supposed to have for each other. Why is this significant? Because intimacy is only something that two people can experience to the depth of what they're supposed to experience in marriage. If it isn't just those two people, then it can't be intimacy. It can't be true marital intimacy. Put it this way. I, I, have, I have people in my life who know this, and I, nobody in the room, no one in our church does this, but I have people in my life who have the gift of encouragement. At least they think they do. And the way they go about that is that when they see you, they tell you how great you are. In fact, they'll use this phrase, you're my favorite, right? You're, and you're like, oh, wow, I feel good. And then they walk away, and five minutes later, you overhear a conversation, and they're saying to that person, you're my favorite. You're the best. And they go on and on. And then five minutes, another conversation. You know, they have 25 different people who are their favorite. How does that make you feel when you hear that? I don't feel like I'm the favorite anymore. Why? Because being favorite means it's an exclusive thing that is attached to one person. Intimacy is the same thing. You can't have multiple people and true experience true intimacy. Why? Because it's only meant to be with one other person in the sexual arena. That's the way God has set it up. And then there's the third reality. And the third thing of gospel shaped sexuality or morality has to do with, and that is unity. That means only by you. It says in verse 24, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This is really important. Part of the process of what happens relationally in marriage is there's a breaking away from family to form a new family. And that happens through a bond that gets created between a husband and a wife. And it's interesting, I'm, I'm speculating, but I'm, it's pretty accurate. Interesting that it says that a man will leave his father and his mother because I've seen it. Men have a harder time leaving the family of origin, if it's a healthy one even, than a woman does. They have to bond with their wife. Part of the bonding process, again, is what? It's oxytocin. It's the chemical reaction. It's the hormone reaction within the body that creates what? It creates, a, it births a new family. And that's why this is so important. You can't do that multiple times. You can't keep doing that over and over and over again. Why? Because I have 25 families. No, it doesn't work that way. I bond with one person. Why? Because it gives me, it gives me a separation, a healthy separation from the, my family of origin. Why? Because now I establish my own. God created that. It isn't just that we kick our kids out of our house and say, go figure it out. No, there's a, there, there's a disattachment for an unattachment in the lives of people. And God sets that up on purpose. Why? Because there's unity between that. There's a connection between a male and a female. That's the bond that God has created. And that's the way it's supposed to be for us in our lives. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going to have the worship team come back up again. But before we do that, I want to just take some time to talk about the last few things. And this is really, really important. Really important because I'm convinced I've been praying for this day and know what God is wanting to do. And Tim shared it earlier as we were praying before first service, just the, the image that God is wanting to literally saturate our lives with his love and his grace because that's what will deal with the shame issue that keeps us unhealthy in this area. And as I was praying this morning, one of the things the Lord highlighted for me was Jesus just reminded me, I want people to be free. And I think, oh yeah, I get that. But immediately the Lord took me to Galatians chapter one, verse five, which it says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. What? For the purpose of actually being free. What does that mean? 
It, it's not enough for you to have freedom purchased for you if you never live into it. It's not freedom unless you live in it. And here's the reality. I was just thinking this morning, I was praying, and I just thought, think about what Jesus, Jesus, one of the primary goals that Jesus was to accomplish, to come out of heaven, to step onto earth, to live as a human being, to suffer and die and be ridiculed and isolated, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, was to set us free from the power of sin in our lives. It was one of his primary goals. And this is, just want you just to picture, what would it have been like to be Jesus? To suffer what you and I can't even imagine would be to suffer. To have all your friends turn their back on you. To suffer physically. To die the most horrific way in crucifixion. But then to rise from the dead. And we even sang it today in the last song we sang. When his dead body started to breathe again. What was it like for Jesus in that moment where he came back to life? Because he was perfect. So sin is the thing that is, leads to death. And he had no sin, therefore death couldn't hold him. So he's breathing again, and now he knows everything that he set out to accomplish is done. It's done. And that means in that moment, Jesus knew that the freedom that humanity needs and longs for is now offered freely to them. Can you imagine the satisfaction in that moment for him? That is a victory right there. But what's the tragedy in the victory? when we as human beings don't take his offer and we say, ah, I'll do it my own way. And then we get stuck in the cycle. There's three things I want to highlight of how do you navigate this? So how, if I'm, if I'm in the situation where I'm sexually active outside of marriage or I've, I've had that in the past or all the things we listed or I'm struggling with sexual addiction or I'm addicted to pornography or whatever it might be. How do, I, how do I work through this challenge of this huge issue in my life that has caused shame, it's caused disconnect, it's caused me to be dishonest, it's caused me to violate myself and other people. How do I deal with that? How does God redeem that? The first thing is this. You have to confess it. You have to. Here's, here's the reality of what happens. Confession is simply saying before God and many times to other people what is the true broken reality of your life. There's something powerful in the words of you saying it. Not just thinking it, but saying it. Why? Because what God is waiting for is for you to finally admit what he already knows is true about you. He's just waiting for you to admit it. That's what confession is. And there's something that breaks the power of sin in our life by confessing. Why? Because it's no longer in the darkness it's no longer hidden. It's no longer this place that can control me. Why? Because it's out there. It's out there. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm not letting shame drive me away from people. I'm getting it out there. And so confession is that first step. And that might mean, first of all, confessing to God, but secondly, confessing to somebody else. So somebody else knows your journey. Somebody else knows your story. Somebody else knows your brokenness. Not as a point of rejection or acceptance, but the fact that somebody else knows you're not the only one carrying this. You're not living in isolation, which leads to the second thing that you have to do. Confession starts the process, but then the next step is this thing called forgiveness. Why do we need forgiveness? Because just like Adam and Eve, we said to God at many points in our life, I'll do it my way. And when we did that, we violated what God had set out, the original design and purpose for our lives, and we disconnected ourselves from God. So now every decision we make continually keeps us at a distance from God. The only way we get back to God and become fully human again is what? If somehow we get reconnected to him. The only way we get reconnected is if God deals with our sin. 
because our sin keeps us away from him. It, it breaks our relationship. So Jesus' death on the cross, the Bible literally says Jesus became our sin, our sin offering. All of our sin went on him. Why? Because he dealt with it once and for all, past, present, future, so that I get reconnected with God, even though I know I'm a broken human being that's going to fail again, God forgives me. Otherwise, I can't be fully who I am. I can't be fully human. I can't be everything that God created me. Why? Because I'm still disconnected from the one who created me. So Jesus makes a way for us to do that. That's why you have to say, this is who I am. This is the brokenness I live in. But Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need this exchange. I'll give you my sin. You give me your righteousness. And you make me right with God. And Jesus is faithful to do that. There's a step. But then there's a third reality. And usually this is where we get it backwards. The third step in the process is actually called repentance. Repentance doesn't come before confession and before forgiveness. You know why? Because repentance has to do with tomorrow, not today. Repentance literally means to turn. It means to turn from where I was going. And the only way I know if I'm repenting is not what I do today, it's what I do tomorrow. It's if I'm now going a different direction from where I was going before. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to trip and I'm not going to stumble, I'm not going to fail again, but it means the trajectory of my life is different now. I'm striving to actually follow Jesus. And along the way, when I trip and I fall and I stumble and I blow it, what happens is Jesus is there to pick me up again and forgive me and move me forward. Why? Because when you repent, when you fall, you fall forward, not back. And God's grace is sufficient to continue to forgive as you move forward. Now, I share all these because this is important because walking this out is difficult. And walking this out cannot be done alone. It can't. It's never been done in human history. It's too hard. That's why God gave us each other. So I want to mention something, and then, then the worship team, in fact, worship team, you can come and join me right now. But there's some things I want to know. This, because this, this particular area has so much shame attached to it and so much control over our lives, I want to be, be sensitive to the nature of what goes on in people's lives in this room. And so there's some things that, that may be required in your life to find freedom in this area, to find freedom from having sex with every person that you meet because you think that's somehow going to answer to the need in your soul, to find freedom from the affair that maybe even you're currently involved in, that you're cheating on your spouse, to find freedom from the sexual addiction that it's embedded itself into your soul and controls you, and you have moments of health, and then it go right back into the same cycle. How do I get free from that? There's, there's a number of things. First of all, one of them is accountability. You can't do it on your own. Somebody else has to know. Somebody else needs to know so they can care for you, pray for you, and ask you questions about how you're doing. Not as a point of condemnation or shame, but as a way of saying, hey, I'm with you. I'm going to walk with you through this. For others, there's a second step that you need to take. Accountability is good, but it's not enough. You need recovery. And recovery goes beyond accountability because recovery actually says, I'm not the only person dealing with this in my life. There are other people who are walking this out and I need to walk with them and they need to walk with me. Why? Because they know where I've been. That's the beauty of recovery, by the way. If you've ever gone or know someone who's been in an AA meeting or an SA meeting, one of the first steps, we all know what the first step is. You have to admit you're an alcoholic. You have to admit you're a sex addict. Why? That's the first step. And in that, guess what? Everybody else in the room kind of goes, yeah, yeah, me too. And here's the beautiful thing about recovery. When you share your stuff and you come back a second, a third, and a fourth time, you can't hide behind shame anymore. You can't pretend you don't have an issue anymore. Why? Because that room full of people's been there and they know, pardon my French, they know your BS. 
They know that when you're lying, why? Because they've done the same thing. And you need that ongoing accountability, that work steps that says, I'm going to walk this out because there's issues in my life. But you know, there even may be something even beyond recovery groups that you need. You may need accountability. You may need a recovery group. You need to go to SA or AA, whatever it is. But there's something deeply in your soul that you can't find freedom from because it goes back into your past that you've never dealt with and let Jesus resolve. And that may require professional counseling. Professional counseling that helps you deal with the issues in your past. So here, I want to do this before I pray. I want to be sensitive. This is difficult. This is not true for everybody, but this is true for a high percentage of people. People who have struggled with sexual intimacy, with staying within the bounds of the biblical kind of narrative of, of what sexuality is supposed to look like. Those who have struggled with sexual addiction, not all of them, but the majority of them, it starts in a moment of violation in their lives. Normally, not always, but normally when they're a child. They're abused by a family member. Somebody goes through an assault or a rape. And something happens in that violation in that moment where the enemy gets a hold of something and distorts it and twists it and breaks it. And what happens is that you get a hook into you. And you need to find a way to get free from that. And sometimes it's, it's only through the gifting and the skill of a very, very good Christian counselor that will take you back to the moment of violation to set you free. And I've seen people go through that. Some people who didn't even know there was a violation in life discover that there is and they have to find a way to let it go and forgive so God can set them free. So if, if you are in need, particularly of those last two things, recovery or you know I need professional counseling, then I'm going to ask you to do a really simple thing, okay? It's going to be anonymous other than it's actually, I'll tell you, it's going to come to me. I'm going to be the only one who sees this, okay? There's a web, there's an email address we're handing out. It's called resources at antioxime.org. You just email that, that email address and then you will get an email back from me that has resources and referrals of where you can go to find help. I'm not going to broadcast this to leadership, to staff, to anybody at the church. I'm the only one getting the email, okay? And I'm going to give you resources so that you can take a next step. Please don't let the enemy lie to you and say, I'm fine. I'm okay. No, if you know that it's something you're dealing with, you're not fine. And you're not okay, and God has put you in a community of people that cares and loves, and you are serving a God who loves you and wants you to find freedom in your life. So here, I know I'm going on, but this is the last thing I want to say because this is so important. What's the answer to our shame? What is the answer to shame that controls us and either causes us to defend ourselves or to retreat? There's one thing that takes away our shame. It's the love of God. It's the cure for the human soul. Because what happens is if you realize for the first time in your life that God actually does love you, that even when you blow it, and you, I've had people say, well, you don't know what I've done. God does. And his love is unconditional. This is what it says to you. God's unconditional love says this to you. I will not reject you based on your behavior. The greatest fear that we have is if we become known that somebody will reject us because we're, we're wrong, we're sinful, we're broken. We did something wrong, and so what do we do? We hide in the shadows of shame. Why do you think every time somebody in the New Testament encountered Jesus and they got a hold of God's love, it just blew their life wide open? Why? Because they no longer dealt with shame anymore. Why? Because they knew that God actually loved them. And in a moment, we're gonna sing a song that talks about God's love and God's grace 
that overcomes our fear of rejection, which clears the cloud of shame in our lives. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you bring your freedom through your love for us today? So Lord, every single person who's here that has ever questioned your love for them and has lived in the shadows and lived strangled by addiction, especially in the sexual arena, Lord, I pray that today that you would set them free because they will know for the first time your love for them. That Jesus, you accept us because of what you did on the cross, not what we've done in our, in our lives and our behavior. So Jesus, would you bring freedom in our lives? Would you set us free to be the kind of people who no longer live with shame, but Lord, we strive to move forward in a healthy understanding of sexuality, living within the guardrails and the parameters of how you've designed us so that ultimately we can be the people that you want us to be, the people you created us to be. So Jesus, would you do that as we sing and make this our prayer to you today that you would bring freedom and understanding that you are a God who loves us. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.